Hey everyone. This episode features a conversation with Anne-Marie S. Walter and Hugo Droken, who co-wrote a paper entitled Conspiracy Thinking in Europe and America, a Comparative Study. Um, the topic, I think, of conspiracy theories speaks for itself. It's politically pressing and research into the personal and environmental conditions which lead to the proliferation of conspiracy theories is urgent. But I wanted to start this episode with a quite personal story about a friend I lost to suicide that um, may explain why this topic in particular is especially important to me. Perhaps you'll be able to relate or draw analogies to your own experiences. If you were looking to skip directly to the interview with Hugo and Anne-Marie, that starts at around the 23 and a half minute mark. But if you're up for a little narrative storytelling, keep listening. This is a, a story about the conspiracy theories that I flirted with a decade ago, but more importantly, it's an homage to my friend, Ellery Sampson. Mistakes! 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 It was the spring in 2007 when I met Ellery. Well, I actually met Charlie, his eight-year-old chocolate lab, first. I was at the dog park in Tompkins Square Park in Manhattan's East Village. I went there every morning with my dog, Puzzle, and a cup of coffee. New York City's dog park culture has its own set of rules and forms of etiquette that governs its denizens. I had learned these in the first year of Puzzle's life. You become familiar with the names and faces of the regulars, and you quickly know which dog belongs to which human. You know the dogs who play a little too rough, or don't play at all, or have overly prude owners who freak out if another dog even sniffs the genitals. You know the owners who don't mind if you yank their dog out of trouble, and the owners who would slit your throat if you even attempted to pet their special little guy. You have the owners who listen to music or stare at their phones and only look up when a neighbor passive-aggressively remarks how their dog is doing its duty and, and someone really ought to attend to it. My dog was a bit of a class clown of the dog park in his puppy years. He was generally enjoyable and knew when not to push a tired old dog too much, but he did like to hump. So there he was one morning, humping this chocolate lab that I had never seen before. She was far too big for him. His effort was clumsy and I was slightly embarrassed on his behalf. I sighed and scanned the human faces to see if anyone was reciting a prayer and displaying their horror at this open display of pornography. Basically, I wanted to see if anyone wanted me to go tell Puzzle to give it a rest. Then, I noticed someone doing the exact same thing that I was doing. He was tall, with skinny black jeans and a tight gray t-shirt. He had the same annoyed grin that I must have been showing as he scanned the park for humans who owned the mutt that was feebly trying to hump his dog. We almost laughed when our eyes hit. We didn't give a shit. A short head nod and mutual gesture with our matching hipster coffees to acknowledge how ridiculous this whole thing was. And that was that. We were friends. We struck up a conversation about indie music and where he moved from. It turned out to be San Francisco. I told him what I knew about the local coffee shops and bars he should check out. When we shared our information, he gave me his email. It was his name at something called hushmail.com. I hadn't heard of that before. It sounded kind of weird. He told me it was super encrypted or secretive or something. I didn't think much of it at the time. We began hanging out regularly, making music, watching horror movies, bullshitting about life, smoking pot. One time, in a weed-induced coughing fit, I offered him some tap water. 
He made sure to reject it with a kind of horrified look as he reached for his filtered bottled water. He told me he never drank that stuff. Didn't I know what they put in it? I wasn't sure who they was. Another time I noticed his left eye drooping in a funny way. He must have felt self-conscious about it. He told me that he had multiple sclerosis, and it was pretty serious, but he was optimistic about it. He was diagnosed a few years earlier. He was taking B12 injections and trying to be careful about his environment. I started to notice his limp a bit more after that. I don't remember exactly how he sent me the first message that would move our conversations to the realm of conspiracy. As I'm going back through my emails now to piece together our timeline, I'm realizing that the hushmail thing works pretty well and his digital breadcrumbs are hard to find. But I do remember the video. He told me to watch a film called Zeitgeist. This film has been viewed now over 250 million times and translated into more than 70 languages. The more you begin to investigate what we think we understand, where we came from, what we think we're doing, the more you begin to see we've been lied to. We've been lied to by every institution. What makes you think for one minute that the religious institution is the only one that's never been touched? The religious institutions of this world are at the bottom of the dirt. The religious institutions in this world are put there by the same people who gave you your government, your corrupt education, who set up your international banking cartels, because our masters don't give a damn about you or your family. All they care about is what they have always cared about, and that's controlling the whole damn world. I remember the film feeling pretty special. It was paced and produced in such a way to make you feel like it was letting you in on a big secret that your parents, schools, and governments hadn't told you. And the internet was delivering it to me now before they could shut it down. So I better pay attention quick. The first part was about religion and the origin stories of the myths of religion, in particular the Christ story. It laid out how the story of Christ was basically a plagiarized adaptation of several earlier religious stories that ultimately reference common shared natural phenomena like the movement of the stars in the sky and the changing of the seasons. The frequency of gods born on or around December 25th with three key figures making their way towards the event is nicely explained by common experiences like axial tilt causing seasonal shifts and constellations and planets moving through their procession and pointing towards sunrises and cosmological events on certain dates and stuff like that. This was all pretty good stuff, though it wasn't entirely new to me. It was laid out in a hard-hitting way with a kind of sinister narration suggesting that they don't tell you about this stuff in society, that the lie of the originality of Christianity is upheld for some other reasons of keeping us in the dark or at least discouraging us from asking too many questions. This part was easy for me. I was familiar with atheism and wouldn't resist any kind of teardown of the truth claims of religious myths, though I never thought too much about the reasons why, if the myths were lies, I shrugged them off as noble lies. No doubt they were trying to tell stories to help people morally navigate a chaotic universe, but was there something more to it than that, this film seemed to suggest that there was. So what was the reason, the real reason, for the hidden knowledge of the unoriginality of Christianity in the West? Well, 
You have to keep watching to get that full picture. I admit I was pretty intrigued at this point. Looking back at it now, I was watching this film in 2008, and today it would likely get lost in a sea of similarly hacky YouTube kaleidoscope jobs. It was really ahead of its time in that regard. Oh, and also, I was likely stoned. As if a demolition team set off when you see the old demolitions of these old buildings. It looks like one of those scenes of an old building being purposely dynamited and blown up. Anybody who's ever the next section started to talk about 9-11. This was laying the groundwork to the questions raised in the first section. Why don't they want us to know? Why don't they want us asking questions? How come the stories of the dozens of gods with strikingly similar details to the Christ story wasn't taught to me in high school or college? How come I had to find that out from this weird video on the internet? Who would want to hide this? Well, section two suggested that elements within the U.S. government allowed or directly engineered the terrible attack to build a pretense of fear and start their war of terror, which fueled the harsh limitations of civil liberties and increased surveillance. The film asked a lot of questions about curious plumes from the towers, potential missiles on the plane, the melting point of steel, tower number seven's collapse, and the lack of photographic plane evidence at the Pentagon, and so on. By now, these theories are pretty well known. At the time, I hadn't heard much about them, even while living just a mile away from the site of the attack. I was skeptical, but curious. I had the same question after the first section. Okay, even if we aren't getting the whole story about this thing, isn't this just another noble lie? Aren't they keeping these things from us, not for some nefarious reasons, but for reasons that are probably moral, or at least intended to be? But is there something even deeper that ties these things together? It happened, providing some kind of cover for what must be operations orchestrated in some way by the state. I paused and texted Ellery. Holy shit, this movie is nuts, man. He responded with, call me when you finish. I hit play. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and a secret proceedings. The last section was genuinely interesting, at least in substance. It was all about the Federal Reserve, and it was my first exposure to economic techniques like zero reserve banking, arguments of fiat currency, the history of the gold standard, and things like that. I won't lay out all that stuff here, but I actually could see some really big problems. It was and is possible that small groups of financiers could manipulate currency prices of nations and benefit by instigating wars, which spurred desperate warring nations to take out more and more loans to win at all costs, all the while lining the pockets of the banks and devaluing the currency for the winners. These shady agencies could very much benefit by playing both sides of a conflict. This was fascinating to me. It still is. But wait, had this actually happened? And how could they even pull it off? How much influence would they have over other aspects of society like our water supply or a terrorist attack. The film, of course, went on to present what it would call evidence that it had happened and regularly does, and it's much bigger than anyone thought. By its suggestion, 9-11 was just another in a long line of false flag operations that fit into this big, crazy pattern 
that has its ultimate goal set on one world currency and one world government with complete control over all of us and can push us around into endless conflicts and numb our minds with secretive technology. All for what? Well, the conspiracy theories never need to really answer that question, but I think the conclusion is that it allows a small group of these characters to build palaces and do weird sexual stuff, or it's alien species of lizards which uses this elaborate plan to steal our resources. I'm not sure. It's always hazy at that part. If this is sounding a little bit like an Alex Jones fantasy, you're exactly right. Ellery would also share the very young website InfoWars with me within a few months and tell me about this really badass kid named Paul Joseph Watson who was directly confronting these sneaky globalists at airports and posting them to YouTube. Okay, so there I was after hitting the space bar. I called Ellery and told him I definitely needed to talk about this. I actually did feel like I had just been awoken to some pretty big truths. I remember looking at the sun in a new way the moment I left the apartment, now thinking how that old ball of burning gas in the sky was the literal analogy of the Christ story, and all the churches I passed were modern recasts of ancient pagan religions. I actually kind of liked that. It made me appreciate them more and disdain the preaching less. It felt almost quaint and comforting to place the adherence to a modern myth in a fully natural human activity that actually connected us to the cosmos. But that third part about the Federal Reserve, I really wanted to talk about that stuff. Ellery and I walked around the neighborhood, and I must have been pretty energized. He giggled and grinned as I went on about zero reserve banking systems and how fucked up it all was. He told me about Ron Paul and how there was this movement to push back against all this stuff. He was a big fan. I kept talking about it like it was this huge loophole that people could really take advantage of and that the hunch people have that the system is rigged against them totally has a mechanism to make it a reality. But I kept getting to that same question. Why would anyone really do this? What is the end goal? Do they really have the power to influence huge world events and small targeted ones too? How would they even do so? Ellery told me, he had a book for me in his apartment and invited me up. He was digging through his bookshelf for it, told me that it was a pretty special object. He had ordered a bunch on eBay when he found them, and he only had a few left. They were kind of collector's items. I felt pretty special as he handed me the book. No jacket, it was hardcover. The spine read, None Dare Call It a Conspiracy by Gary Allen. Veterans of conspiracy theory topics definitely are sighing right now. This book is an old standard of this process. Ellery told me that it would really help me make sense of things. He then asked me if I wanted to smoke some weed. The next few years of our relationship were familiar. He would show me a documentary like Loose Change and videos from architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth or books by Carol Quigley or The Creature from Jekyll Island by Edward Griffin or any of the latest Watson or Alex Jones videos. We would talk about it, and I would focus on the notions of corruption, and he would always go further into conspiracy. But a conspiracy to do what exactly? That part still was never answered. He didn't know, but meanwhile, his multiple sclerosis was getting worse. He told me he just really needed to be extra careful with this stuff because of his health. 
Was the fluoride in our water system a simple story of city council corruption and shady local governments working out backroom deals to dispose of a kind of harmless waste while overstating its health benefits? Or was it really a serum that mixed with the chemtrail clouds dropped from planes to lower our IQs and make us easier to manipulate into a system of population control? I would entertain the first question, but not follow Ellery down the second one, no matter how many hits of the resin I would take. He took silver drops on his tongue that he bought from Infowars and eschewed the traditional MS treatments, which frankly weren't great anyway. So what did he have to lose, he reasoned. He brought me a strange machine once and told me to just plug it in because he loved me and didn't want me to get hurt. It was this little metal box and it was supposed to block harmful cell tower signals from the radius of it. He knew I wasn't worried and he really believed he was saving my life, so I took it and hugged him. Meanwhile, we made music, watched sports, played with our dogs, took photos, and started a horror movie club. It only had two members, just us, but we made these cool pins. I gave him enough of an open ear to his increasingly far-fetched conspiracies by keeping open the possibility that corruption could lead to conspiracy, but it started to distance us. Then Occupy Wall Street burst onto the scene. We would ride our bikes down to Zuccotti Park just about every day to see what was going on. It wasn't hard to find pockets of conversations where people were discussing things like the evil of the Federal Reserve. There was energy and anger. Everyone had an idea or theory about the inequality of the system. There were 9-11 truthers trying to convince skeptical college kids. Ellery was super into all of it. We met a smart young man named Thompson, and we all began hanging out as a trio. It was clear that Thompson would go all the way down the conspiracy holes with Ellery that I wouldn't. Thompson really knew his stuff. They spoke a language that left me behind at some point of detail. They were clearly reading the same blogs or watching the same videos and knew all the latest discoveries of the globalists' plans uncovered by stolen documents from the Bilderberg meetings. I was becoming a bit of a third wheel, and Ellery and I both knew it. Our relationship strained, and after a few cold weeks of delayed communication, I asked him to meet me for a coffee at one of our usual spots, the Ace Hotel. I had become good friends with his wife and started to reveal my worry about how seriously he seemed to be taking a lot of this stuff. She had a good poker face, but she definitely agreed. At the Ace Hotel, I laid it all out. I told him I loved him and knew he was a little hurt that I wasn't entertaining his conspiracies all the time, but that I thought the premises were incredibly interesting and I'd really love to keep talking about that stuff. I wanted to let him know that all the conspiracy stuff really wasn't that important to me or our friendship. He told me that he got it, and in a moment of what I remember as vulnerability, he told me that these things were really just kind of fun for him. I wasn't sure how much I believed him. His eye was drooping more than ever. He also told me that his wife was pregnant. Shortly after his daughter was born, his marriage ended. He didn't want to get her vaccinated for fear of a globalist plot to control us. His wife ignored this and also left him. We weren't all that close by the time he left New York to follow his now ex-wife and daughter out west to California. 
I never could figure out how to connect with him after that coffee at the Ace Hotel. Talking about corruption possibilities of zero reserve banking just wasn't enough. Years later, when Trump rose to power and Infowars and Paul Joseph Watson were household names, I called his ex-wife to try to parse out some of these memories that I was actively burying under confusion and shame. Seeing the very ideas that Ellery was picking up come to take over popular political discourse was and continues to be bewildering and frightening for me. Here's what I learned about how conspiracy theories work, all of them. There is always the same illogical jump, and it goes like this. When you discover who benefits from an event, you also have discovered who engineered the event. That is the almost reasonable sounding front door to the world of conspiracy rabbit holes. But just notice the problem there. Did oil companies benefit from 9-11? Did the Clintons benefit from Jeffrey Epstein's death? Did Pfizer benefit from coronavirus? Did small groups of coincidentally Jewish bankers benefit from wars in Europe? Did Joe Biden benefit from a winter storm in Texas, knocking out the power and embarrassing the Republican lawmakers? Well, then, the conspiracy theorists will tell you, you already know the answer to who engineered each event. Now, the fun part is figuring out how they did it and how they tried to hide it. The difference between an opportunistic move that capitalizes on an unforeseen catastrophe versus the intentional causing of the catastrophe and being in the perfect position to benefit from it is the crucial difference. The problem is, sometimes, that shift from opportunist corruption to conspiracy is actually true. Richard Nixon did benefit from a break-in of his political opponents, and he did engineer it and try to cover it up. But it always requires extreme evidence. Usually, this evidence quickly rises to a level of impossibility and impossibly unlikely cooperation and collaboration to keep itself secret. I mean, just look how easily Richard Nixon's conspiracy was exposed. The padlock safe cries out for personalities like Ellery's to try to pick that lock. It can become intoxicating. I glimpsed it and felt the goosebumps that come with joining the chase. Solving a mystery is quite the thrill, especially when the clues are so cryptic. I don't know the state of Ellery's mind in the spring of 2020 when COVID prompted global lockdowns near the end of Trump's term and QAnon went global, but I could guess that it was rather dark. He must have understood all of these events to be the confirmation of his worst fears of a globalist humanity control scheme. His medical condition may also have steadily run its course to wither his body as he refused traditional treatments. His ex-wife told me that he was in a wheelchair at the end. She told me that he still had my business card in his wallet when his body was found. I miss him a lot and replay our friendship and conversations over and over. I often go back to that last coffee at the Ace Hotel and wonder if there was anything I could have done or said or suggest that might have nudged him on a better path that would have led him closer to what I'm sure was a better fate. I don't know if any in my listener group can relate to any of that or even identify with Ellery himself, but I have unresolved emotional and intellectual ideas about it all. I see a lot of reminders about the psychology that I witnessed and flirted with in modern political circles on the right, left, and center. I see certain online personalities play with these things in haphazard ways that make me anxious. I always worry that there is a mental point of no return 
where the sunk cost is just too great to climb out of, and the only way out is to go all the way through the rabbit hole, with tragic results, on both a personal and societal level. This episode is a dive into that trend with two fantastic academics who are studying the phenomena of conspiracy theories at a zoomed-out nationwide scale. They're really after the chase and the data to decipher what kind of environmental conditions of the political, economic, and historical type lead to rises and falls and adherence to conspiracy theories. This kind of work is urgent, and I take all of it quite seriously. I know it can be fatal, not just for nations, but of course for individuals who we know and love. It's with all of that in mind that I dedicate this episode to my friend, Ellery Sampson. Here is some of his music with a band called The Mall that he formed as a young man in San Francisco. It's awesome. Dilemma, Season 2, Episode 20, Conspiracy Theories. Tell me why this paper and this study is different and new. So this is a, yeah, a, a very interesting uh, paper, we think ourselves. It's uh, innovative in a sense that it's the first and the largest comparative study. So beforehand uh, or previously, um, people have studied, of course, negative um, conspiracy thinking uh, and conspiracy theories um, in depth uh, extensively. However, uh, yeah, almost all the work uh, tends to be single country studies, uh, also very much US focused. And even um, if the studies are done in other contexts, other single case studies. And for us as uh, scientists, of course, this has a, a broader implication because you never know to what extent, uh, first of all, theories are generally uh, applicable. Uh, and uh, even if they look, uh, yeah, if it looks like um, findings can be generalized, to what extent is it due to maybe um, uh, yeah, methodological differences um, in terms of conceptualization, operationalization, to what extent that is the case. So this is more methodological um, yeah, reasoning yeah. behind it. But also uh, the moment that you, of course, start to compare countries, you can say something uh, more broader about uh, conspiracy uh, thinking. So to what extent is it a universal phenomenon? Uh, but also uh, it gives us the potential to look beyond uh, individual characteristics. Yeah. So because although um, a lot of work is done by um, psychologists, uh, we are uh, political scientists, and we think that uh, although uh, we do not claim uh, in any way that people are different wherever they are, they function uh, the same way. But of course, they are also affected uh, potentially by the by the environment. And, and, and so if there was like a, a founding myth or assumption that at least for me, and I think you acknowledge it sort of in the open and in the abstract that this was scratching at is this. Uh, maybe common belief that the United States in particular has this kind of like fascination with conspiracy theories and and, uh, you know, sort of leads the charge in that front. And that and that's what you were sort of trying to also examine as a hypothesis, like how true that is. So it, before we get into sort of that nitty, nitty gritty stuff, I, I do want to take it to, to Hugo. I think that this question of sort of what is a conspiracy theory? How did you even you know, how do you start to even define what conspiracy theory thinking is, of course, is a question you need to answer before you go looking for it. Yeah, and I think that's a super interesting question. I think a lot of people, because when we have these broader discussions, people say, well, you know, what's the difference between saying lying, for instance, and conspiracy theories? Like, what's mm. the difference between the two, for instance? And it's a very good question. 
And I think, you know, one of the, and if you think about American, not just American politics, and I think we could talk about that European politics too. It's like, well, you know, this, that's a conspiracy. It's like, well, no, actually, if somebody just lies, they're just, no, they know the truth and they're saying something else. But conspiracy theorists have something different. It's not just about lying. It's about saying, oh, and the explanation. So whatever has been told is not true. And the explanation for what really is going on is some form of conspiracy. There has to be mm -hmm. that conspiratorial element. And if there's that conspiratorial element, then there is a conspiracy theory. And conspiracy theory, what's it? There's, like conspiracy theory itself has a kind of a, a history, which is very interesting that, you know, probably before it's there's a debate about this within the historians but at least like watergate maybe before watergate at least at the beginning of of um of the 20th century and you can go back actually if you look at the debates that were happening during the american war of independence or the american revolution conspiracy was a classic way to talk about politics like you know the king is conspiring or it's parliament that's conspiring against us you know in the us and we want to liberate ourselves from that so that language was there and for a long time a conspiracy theory was just kind of like a term of art it was just like we have a theory about what happened and what happened was a conspiracy um and that was all fine but it's true that something changes probably with watergate where today we say conspiracy theory for most people there's a slight pejorative element to it and it's true during kind of watergate then and also previously obviously jfk there was a sense of well you know there's these people who have conspiracy theories and they all think it's a conspiracy but actually maybe that's not true and there was a slight attempt i think by the u.s government to to use to to make that term which is slightly a kind of a dismissive term even though mm. we know there perhaps were especially with watergate and you could say watergate is is a bit of a conspiracy you know it's like well nixon conspired to break into the democratic national committee to get information um, and then there's an interesting discussion there to be had about what's the ratio between conspiracy theories and cover-ups, right. right? Because actually probably the biggest thing about Watergate was then they tried to cover it up. Right. Um, and is that also a conspiracy or not? So, sorry, maybe that's going a bit too far already, but there's a number of different things going on there. But at least conspiracy theories, there has to be something about, you know, you're explaining an event. And that's interesting that we see that certain conspiracy theories are linked to events. So 9-11 jfk whatever it might be you know well actually 9 11 is an inside job by the cia whatever it might be or then we say that there's sometimes more kind of systemic conspiracy theories that actually every single thing that happens in the world is you know the 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 fact of a small group of people who we don't know or secret we don't know them they control everything not only political events but economic events even environmental events right mm -hmm. like oh there was an earthquake it was by this small group of people and i think what we also what's interesting is what is the relationship between the event kind of conspiracy theories and the systemic conspiracy theories i tend to be on the side of saying if you scratch a little for the people who have event conspiracy theories who say like 9-11 was an inside job, if you push them a bit, they'll probably end up in this, you know, saying that, well, actually, there's a small group of people control every, everything and 9-11 is one example of that. But so yeah. anyway, it doesn't maybe a bit long, but as a starting point in terms of differentiating kind of what's going on. With no, yeah, no, it needs to be. It almost it feels like um, it feels like one of those like you, you just you know it when you hear it. <laughs> and it's and it's one of those hard things to define. It's like that that famous uh, Supreme Court, like, you know, pornography when you see it versus art. Yeah. It's like, you know, conspiracy when when you hear one. But it is kind of hard to pin it down of exactly what it is. Um, let, let's get to some of the the I, I was sort of going to, you know, your papers laid out in a in a way that makes sense for me to use sort of as a map here so if you don't mind i'm going to sort of just use the outline that you already built in the paper with that first question of sort of who believes in conspiracy theories 
um, I don't know if you if you want to start by sort of saying like you lay out all these hypotheses, the education hypothesis, the right wing hypothesis, ideological, et cetera. Where did you start with that as these potential ways to answer that very basic question of who is attracted to these things? And then, yeah, maybe what what did you find in the data? Maybe I'll just, and it's a way of also giving the broader history and then yeah. Amory can come in on more specifics. I think that's maybe a nice way of developing it. But, uh, you know, part of what we are saying that this is the first study that's been done. It's true that conspiracy theories have been studied for a while. And actually, one of the kind of the ur-texts, the starting text was Richard Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style in American Politics, right? Mm. Um, and, that, and he didn't use conspiracy theories, right? It's the paranoid style, which was about, you know, a rising kind of paranoia that he thought was um, coming about in right-wing politics in America. So there was, at first, there was a lot of these kind of more, his, Richard Hofstadter was a historian, so it was a bit more of a historical study. Then you had a lot of these kind of psychological studies. And now, only recently, and it started in America, and that's why we say we're the first to, to, to do a bit of comparative thing, was to look at it from a more quantitative data kind of driven perspective, surveys, these types of things. And that really started in the US. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of, so a lot of it, what we were trying to do, to do was to say, well, there's all these questions that have come up in the US. What if we try and ask, ask these types of questions in Europe too? What, what kind of results are we, are we going to get? And so we, I think we're the first to do it, not just put by putting surveys together, but having it in the same survey. That was right. the kind of, um, addition. So, yeah, so a lot of those questions were coming from the debates that are happening in the US and also in psycholo- psychology. And there's, and you mentioned how everybody has a personal story when it comes to conspiracy theories. Mm. Everybody does. It's a friend. It's something. And, you know, I think we've all had those discussions where all of a sudden somebody starts saying, yeah, but, you know, you know, we're not we're we're not told everything. And, you know, there's a small group of people who are there and they're out to get us, et cetera, et cetera. We've all had that experience experience and that's some of the interesting thing that came out of the us was to say well you can find conspiracy theories in all walks of life right they are everywhere and actually almost probably half of the half of the um, the population if you ask them one of those types of conspiracy theories questions the moon landings were faked 9 11 jfk still a big one etc etc um Overall, about 50% of the population, like half the population will say yes to one of them, right? So it's very widespread. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean to say that there are certain people who are more likely to believe them or not. Right. Um, and maybe that's the right moment to pass over to you, Anne-Marie, in terms of yeah. who's more likely. So we looked at uh, various explanations. Uh, one of the limitations that maybe our data set had is that we do not control for any uh, factors that uh, psychological studies found then, because it tends also to be related sometimes to um, uh, yeah, psychological um, diseases and characteristics. So for instance, people who score high on paranoia uh, are more likely to also um, uh, yeah, feel inclined uh, to believe in particular um, conspiracy uh, theories. Uh, however, we look more at, uh, first of all, of course, we control for uh, social demographic factors, but we also look for more um, yeah, broader um, sociological and political uh, explanations, uh, attitudes that people might hold, behavior that they might engage in. Uh, so in our study, we find uh, various uh, effects. Uh, maybe before I um, go into them, I would also like to state that we do not try to explain a particular a belief in a, in a specific uh, conspiracy theory, but that we try to explain differences between individuals and between um, these individuals um, living in different countries uh, in conspiracy thinking. So we first of all looked uh, by by finding out to what extent there was uh, yeah one underlying um, 
uh, latent uh, variable that we would say is, can we find something um, common in all those particular uh, conspiracies that we asked uh, people, is there something uh, that they have in common? Uh, and that is the case. So uh, if we try to explain conspiracy thinking, we, uh, we find that the, ma the, yeah, the main factors at the individual level or, um, are mainly um, to what extent uh, people feel excluded from the political system. So do they feel represented by the political system? Do they have trust in the political system? And when people do not, they tend to score high on conspiracy thinking. Uh, we also find um, that uh, people, yeah, what they in the literature call uh, magical thinking. So to what extent people believe um, are religious uh, or um, spiritual belief in superstitious elements, that those people have a stronger inclination um, or are more open to conspiracy thinking. In addition, uh, we also find, uh, yeah, for us as political scientists, of course, interesting, uh, yeah, an effect uh, of where people can be positioned uh, in um, the political spectrum. So uh, people who um, are more on the extremes, ideological extremes of the political spectrum tend to be uh, or engage more in conspiracy thinking, but people on the right more so than people on the left. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we think that this is the case uh, because um, there is this uh, idea, broader idea among uh, psycholo psychologists that uh, right-wing um, people um, have a stronger need for certainty, uh, for mm. simple explanations. And that is something that conspiracy thinking speaks to. Uh, so these are the, the, the main four factors that we found. Um, but we also found smaller effects of, for instance, um, yeah, what kind of media people engage with. So people who uh, strongly uh, rely on uh, social media for their main source of information uh, tend to uh, engage more in conspiracy thinking. Uh, people who, in contrast to that, rely more on mainstream media and in particular newspapers, uh, they tend to engage less in conspiracy thinking. Uh, we also find an effect for economic exclusion. So it's not only political exclusion, people feel tend to feel politically excluded, but also people who are actually economically uh, excluded, so have more concerns about their own financial security, they are also more open to um, conspiracy thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to me like re just rattling off a bunch of the of all of those factors and they all kind of make sense. It's a little like intuitive that, um, you know, magical thinking and and getting your news from non mainstream sources and all these kinds of things. Uh, have a has a have a causal relation to sort of the outcome of, of this. The one that that really doesn't that I think people are also a little bit um, it, we need to emphasize is the education hypothesis because you also did find that the level of education someone has is not it, tell tell me if I'm wrong but is not really a strong factor in the a predictive factor of whether or not they're going to subscribe to conspiracy theories. Is that also a finding of it? Is, yeah, in this uh, particular study, we indeed uh, failed to replicate what uh, some others uh, found uh, before us, that uh, having a higher level of education is a strong, strong predictor of not uh, engaging in conspiracy thinking. So yeah. we do not find uh, this effect. And uh, yeah, this is surprising. Yeah. Um, this speaks more to the idea that also uh, high educated people um, can engage in uh, conspiracy thinking might not be what some people would like to believe. Yeah, I think for some of them, you, you do need a level of intelligence just to keep all of the like details of the conspiracy even sort of like operating together. So it's not all that together surprising. But I, let me just ask you, I'm an American. And so like, I've always sort of 
thought that America was ripe with this stuff and it was exaggerated here. Um, <clears throat> well, the, the countries that you, you performed this in, let, let me just get that list in front of me. So I could write a left France, Sweden, Germany, Great Britain, Italy, Portugal, Poland, Hungary, and of course the U.S. Um, what is going on? Because it seems that, again, you went through all of the individual factors that might lead to conspiratorial thinking and you found correlations of varying degrees sort of for all of them and, and a strong relationship. And the one that really doesn't seem to have any weight in it is the one you were looking uh, that you the paper was about is the context, meaning the country that they're in really doesn't seem to have much of a of an effect. Right. I mean, it was a smaller, smaller thing. W what is happening in Europe right now? We've just been through. We're still going through this Trump moment. What's happening over there? I see like news stories from Germany of QAnon rallies and stuff. It, yeah. It, t tell me what's happening there. And then I have just like a lot of questions about what a context is anymore, a, na a national context. How meaningful is it in a world of the Internet when there's almost this like pseudo global nation happening? I think that's maybe I can take that one. I think that's and that's a good point. There, there has been this internationalization and we know that QAnon is starting to come um, to to Europe. I think I think to view that, and I sometimes wonder why do we think the U.S. is the kind of the right country for conspiracy theories? And I wonder whether this goes back like to the X Files and, and these types <laughs> of things, where you know it was, it was just part part of the spread, and maybe that has a role. But you know, you don't need to think too much back in Europe. You think about what the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? Mm -hmm. Which you know the conspiracy theory that the Jews are trying to take over the world, and the impact that had in Hitler's rise in the Nazi regime. To think that Europe has been you know, rife with this for a very, very long time too. And I think the one of the ones that we do here that, um, that and, and you could see how it's internationalized, which is quite interesting. So one of the ones, the big ones is the great, this idea of the great replacement, mm -hmm. right? Which is, which has started off as a kind of, you associate it sometimes with a French thinker, um, Renaud Camus, and this idea that Europe, you know, the elites, the European elites are trying to bring in lots of, you know, um, basically Muslim immigration to replace um, the indigenous uh, white European population. That's quite strong. And you can see how it's been internationalized because the, the Christchurch um, shooter in New Zealand used that as a, a justification for his heinous acts that he did when he attacked a mosque church. And also what was interesting was, if you remember the Charlottesville kind of rallies, the alt-right kind of rally, when they're all going around in their flames at night, they were chanting, you will not replace us. And it wasn't clear whether they were saying you will not replace us or actually or Jews will not replace us. I think us. it was both, yeah. Yeah, I it was probably both chants. And, yeah. and they probably didn't know either, right? So um, so you can see that's, that's kind of internationalized. And it goes back to something I was saying at the beginning in terms of sometimes I think at least that conspiracy theories seem to have a bit of a core, which is, you know, there's a small group of unknown people who are controlling the world and controlling everything. And what you get is, I think you can you get that internationally into the conspiracy theories, and then each kind of context kind of gives its own content to that. So in the US, you get, okay, well, it's QAnon, you have this mm -hmm. deep state with Soros is still in there, right? And then you have Bill Clinton and all these people, um, and that's the version that takes there. You you just, you can get different versions of it um, across across Europe. So so in many ways, it's it's not surprising, and, I, and that was, I think part of why I wanted to look at what was happening in Europe, because it's true, you have this, you have this idea that America, and I think part of it's because of the X-Files, part of it's also because of the type of cultural studies, and maybe it's been studied a bit more in mm. the US context, and maybe there is a sense of it, or maybe it's more kind of, 
it, it's more out there. But but Europe is the, is the same. And we've started looking, and we're doing a new survey, and Anne-Marie's going to tell me off for talking about the work we're doing at the moment that's not yet <laughs> published or it's not yet complete, but we're trying to expand because so far we've looked at US and Europe, and obviously these are kind of developed Western democratic mm-hmm. countries, and we're trying to expand beyond that and say, well, what about you know semi-authoritarian regimes, non-Western countries? And it's rife there too, even perhaps even higher. We're not. We're still trying to figure that out. So it's it's completely naturally international, um, and we're still trying to figure out why why that's the case and one or the other. And just to just to kind of flesh out a bit, I think, think some of the things that Anne Marie was saying about well, I think one of the strongest theories, at least from the political science perspective, and I think part of the reason also we there was a move to do political science more data surveys was that sometimes the psychological or, or there was a concern about not wanting to be kind of patronizing in studying conspiracy mm-hmm. theories that you know this is an important phenomena that is happening in politics and we want to study it to understand it not just simply to dismiss it the kind of theory and a shout out to my friend in, in um joe Uzinski and university of miami who's done really i think is one of the leaders in terms of conspiracy theories a study conspiracy theories and, and from a data perspective what his main finding was that you could, depending on who's in power, is it the Democrats or the Republicans? You get then different. You get more conspiracy theories. So if it's the Democrats in, are in power, you get kind of the Manchurian candidates type of conspiracy theories, where actually it's a kind of Soviet sleeper who's going to take over. And if it's Republicans in power, traditionally you used to have this idea that well, actually it's a kind of big businesses in, in cahoots and, and etc. Um, and, you know, it, even with Trump, it played itself out in, in a certain way, which is that, you know, there was a lot more conspiracy theorizing on the Democratic side about what happened um, with Trump. OK, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But there was a lot of stuff about, you know, the links with Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Some of it took on a conspiratorial element. So that seemed to be kind of played out. And I, we could talk more about Trump because I think Trump is very interesting yeah. from a conspiracy theory perspective. I mean, somebody who launches his political career of a conspiracy theory, the birther, seems like he's going to end. His, his, hopefully, if his <laughs> political career is now over, it's also on the basis of conspiracy theory, which is that the election was stolen. And there's links between conspiracy theories with populism, which is interesting too. But I think what we wanted, what, what my kind, of, what we wanted to look at is that well, that's true that you have this. If you're, if you're, if the party that you support is out of power, you're more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. We we do find that, but we find even more forcefully is that people who don't feel represented at all, i.e., like people who don't vote, who it's who who just are like, well, we're neither a Democrat or a Republican, and it's not that we're independent and we choose between them. It's just that we don't engage in the, in the political process at all. That in the US, I think that to a degree in Europe is even a stronger kind of indicator of, of people who are willing to, who are kind of susceptible or more willing to get involved with conspiracy theories or people who just feel completely excluded from the political system. It's not just that their political parties in power or not. So I think yeah. that was one of the main kind of like just tweaks. It's it, it's true also if, if the, you know, the Democrats were slightly more conspiratorial when Trump was in power, but there's also all these people who, who are just out of it. And what's interesting is that Trump actually, I think, it w- it managed to appeal to those people, the people who wouldn't have voted otherwise. I don't know when you, when or if you want to get on to Trump conspiracy theories, yeah, but that's... I, I, I want to get into all the... I mean, the Trump phenomenon is obviously... Um, when on January 6th, we saw, for all intents and purposes, a conspiracy theory take human form and bust through the doors in the Capitol. Um, I think this is something that we all need to talk about. I mean, I, I want to, I know this wasn't the, a question in your paper, but I'm, you're, you guys are both so deep in the questions. Is conspiracy theory thinking just on the rise generally? Is that, I know you were doing a comparative study, but like, is this trend growing globally or does it just feel that way? 
So our so our work is uh, on data of 2018, and we work mm -hmm. now on more recent data. But of course, when you were asking the, the previous question, what is happening now? Of course, at the moment we're we're in crisis, mm -hmm. we are in pandemic. So you always see historically that in times of societal crisis or uh, yeah, war, um, nah, pandemic is another example, terrorist attacks. That in these times, uh, people. Uh, feel more anxiety, have more uncertainty, yeah. feel more need for control. And that is something that, of course, conspiracy thinking taps into. So to what extent? So if you think that you see maybe um, yeah, since this year really a difference or that it becomes more common uh, to engage um, in conspiracy thinking, it's due to, uh, of course, um, yeah, the time that we are in. Uh, but other factors, of course, that play a role when we talked uh, previously about this globalization is, of course, nowadays also the Internet, uh, how conspiracy theories are, are spread uh, with this speed. And of course, in the United States, um, and you had a particular uh, president in power who um, actively um, contributed to the spread of uh, conspiracy uh, theories, uh, which made, of course, the United States a very interesting case. Yeah, so this is yeah, this is one of those things. So is it on the rise? Uh, yeah, probably a little bit more so than in times uh, of more stability. Yeah, well, let, let's if you don't mind, Hugo, I wanted to uh, to stay on that point though with COVID, which which you're referencing. Obviously, you could see. I mean, the door is wide open to walk through the like, hey, this was an intentional sort of plot in order to control all of us. You could go so far as, you know, Bill Gates want to, wants to inject you with a microchip or something and that stuff going around. Um, yeah, like the door is open there for that. But how do we start, how do you draw the lines of what, what is a conspiracy theory versus sort of um, what is skepticism of like, I don't know, the mainstream story. If somebody is talking about, hey, you know, did COVID-19 escape from a lab in China? Is that a conspiracy or is that or do you or do you need maybe this goes back to that earlier question of still like, wait, how do we draw these lines here? Or do you need like if it just leaked from a lab accidentally, this is not a conspiracy. What you would need is like an intentional leak from the lab and then for some other nefarious purpose to hold that up. Right. And then and then the danger is because obviously like. Anybody who's listening to this, me, my impetus for making it is because, uh, I mean, Emery, you mentioned a crisis. Obviously, there's the health crisis. But I think we're all just trying to figure out how we how we put the genie back on the bottle of conspiracy theories, whether it's a personal friend like you mentioned, Hugo. Everyone has a story. We're all probably, if you're listening to this, you're thinking of your uncle or your cousin or your friend or someone you're not talking to anymore who you fear has fallen into these things. And maybe you want to help them or like, what can I do to reach these people again? Um but something like this COVID-19 thing is really obviously, yeah. If that works as an example to talk about, like what is our responsibility to be skeptical and good sort of scientific thinkers about, hey, we want to know where COVID came from versus when do you know you've fallen over into like, oh, now you're actually engaged in conspiracy theory thinking. Yeah, great. Maybe two things two things on that. I mean, the first one, just to pick up on Anne-Marie's point, it's true. We often think that conspiracy theories kind of rise when there is moments of uncertainty because that's what, when there's uncertainty and people don't know, conspiracy mm. theories kind of fill that vacuum. And also the other thing is when people feel isolated, right? The whole thing of being excluded from politics, economic, and what, what have we had during the pandemic? Well, we've had uncertainty because nobody knows anything about COVID-19. And secondly, we've had all these lockdowns. So people have been actually kind of cut from, cut from one another. And the only way they're to communicating with themselves is through what? 
through social media, which we know is, you know, for, for lots of different reasons, mainly a lot of it to do with its own um, business model, because um, it, it, it's the attention economy where the idea is that if you're emotionally reactive to it, then you're more likely to spend time on it. So conspiracy theories or extravagant things retains your attention. So it's naturally kind of more predisposed to, to the type of to, to type of conspiracy theorizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, in a recent kind of studies show that like a kind of extravagant conspiracy theory claim is up to five times more likely to be shared than, you know, the main news headline of New York Times, something along those lines. I can't remember exactly details. So that's the condition. That's the situation we find we're still still in today. So it's natural that it seems to have kind of um, risen. To go back to your other point, um, and I think you, you put your really finger on it because it's there's a real question because it, it's, it goes to the core of what we think of, think of ourselves as democratic citizens. To be a democratic citizen, you need to be critical. You need to have a degree of skepticism. You're absolutely right. Um, and the question is, when does that skepticism fall into a conspiracy theory, right? And as you, I think you you put your finger on it, which is, well, when you ask questions like, well, what really happened? And where was it in this? Was it in that big market that's now closed, I think? Or was it from the lab? Or what happened? Or was it from those... Um, those researchers who went to study the bats in the caves, you know, what exactly happened? Th- that's fine. And that's probably very healthy. I think the moment you st- you kind of slip over is when you say, well, actually there was a conspiracy by those people or by the people in the lab or by the, the people who were to actually do this for nefarious reasons. And there's links between this potentially, that's the first stage. And then the next stage is there's a link between that and Bill Gates who wants to put implants in your brain. There you can see, um, you can see the slip from one to the other. And I think what's really interesting is that um, there's a couple of things to say there. The, the first is Christopher Hitchens had this great line about conspiracy theories where he said, conspiracy theories are the exhaust fumes of democracy. Hmm. Right? In the sense that, you know, okay, we need a critical kind of skeptic um, public sphere to, to, you know, keep our rooters in check. That's what democracy is supposed to be. Um, but the problem with conspiracy theories, and you see it already with, you know, with Obama and the birth certificate is that, well, if it's just, if it's skepticism and you're critical, then, you know, you're, it's a dialogue and then you're willing to accept kind of information when it comes back down. But conspiracy theories have what's in the literature is often called these kind of self-sealing capacities, any new information. And you've all, if you've talked to conspiracy theorists, you've all made, you've all had this experience where you say to them, well, you know, are you sure what you believe? Like, what about this? And you try to give new information, try to counter what's happened. And they often respond to say, well, you would say that because you don't know or because you're part of it. So any type of new information is just used to kind of buttress what the theory is rather than challenge it. And there is a real difference between the two. And so we saw with, I think Obama is interesting with the birther, right? When he finally released a long, first he released a short form certificate. He was born in Hawaii, then a long form People are like, yeah, but that was a fraud, blah, 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 blah. So it's just it's very hard to get through. And the, the danger, I think the democratic danger there is that when the public sphere, where where the actually conspiracy theory element becomes the dominant form rather than the kind of minority form. And social media has a massive role in that. And I think social media has tipped that slightly over. The challenge we all face now and the challenge Biden faces is, well, how can we kind of change that. And, and I see uh, there's already been lots of talk about regulating. I know Trump's kind of Twitter account, YouTube, et cetera, has been cut down. So that's one answer to it, is whether we can we can tip that back to, to the kind of public sphere into more critis- kind of criticism and educated democratic criticism, skepticism, rather than conspiracy theories. But this, the tip over, social media has definitely played a role in it because social media, as we've just discussed, well, you know, it, 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 it lives off 
it lives off the attention economy, which has a tendency to promote conspiracy theories. So there's, I, I, we can keep, I mean, we keep talking about this, but I don't know if that answers some of the questions you had. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, well, it lays out the problem. Right. <laughs> I think I think we're all like still looking for those answers of like, well, what yeah. can we do about any of this? Like, how do we find sort of a, a break in any of this? I mean, so much of your, your paper was depressing in a way because it's like, hey, if it was just one country or an American phenomenon, maybe we could like start figuring out what's going on in this context that causes it. But when it's a global phenomenon and seemingly the punchline, and Anne-Marie, since I know you're into the details, the punchline really is, it. this is about like individual sort of level analysis is really where you need to be. Staying at the country level analysis is almost a bit of a waste of time or worthless. Like you said, Hugo, that might affect the details of the way it manifests in Germany or Poland or something. But it, it's if, if the phenomenon is more of a deeper... Um, uh, you know, global sort of phenomenon, then we're, we're at the individual level. So yeah, I don't know. I guess we're still just laying out the problem. There's still really no like <laughs> interventions to pull off here. So yeah. we have a, a new paper so that uh, Hugo already uh, referred to. So in this paper, we um, yeah, it's the first comparative paper. So uh, nine countries, including the United States, mm -hmm. but all of these countries were um, uh, relatively, they're relatively similar countries. Eh? Yeah. So they're all, um, uh, Democracies, uh, some maybe have a, a little bit higher democratic quality than the others, but all democracies, they're all, all relatively wealthy countries. They all have a similar interpretation of uh, contemporary history, uh, therefore might also share uh, various values. Um, and therefore we found a very limited uh, effect uh, that, yeah, that maybe country uh, variables can have and we point towards the individual. So uh, Hugo and I is not published unpublished work. Uh, we are currently working on a paper um, with um, uh, 20 countries, if I recall uh, correctly, uh, trying to explain um, in particular um, COVID conspiracy thinking. Mm. So um, this is 20,000 voters, Yukov data. And there we also uh, try again to find out uh, whether it's uh, yeah, the environment in which uh, people live and to what extent that has an effect on whether they engage in uh, COVID conspiracy thinking. There we do find actually context effects, but that is because mm. the, yeah, the sample is broader and we have, as Hugo said before, also included uh, countries that um, have an authoritarian regime or a hybrid regime in, in uh, not only uh, yeah, in contrast to previously where we had uh, only limited number of flawed democracies and full democracies. And also, for instance, we model like uh, the level of development in a country. And those two factors seem to be related. Yeah, but that is I, a broader comparison. And how do they push them? Is it like authoritarian? So, so the, more yeah. the more democratic a country is, the lower the level of um, um, conspiracy thinking. Hmm. And uh, yeah, the higher developed uh, countries and development is then measured as is a combination of uh, education, um, um, low uh, mortal uh, mortality, uh, and also economic um, reserves that a country has. Mm -hmm. um, the um, so the higher the level of uh, development, the the lower the um, level of COVID uh, conspiracy thinking. Mm. And and what do you think like? is driving that in particular is it sort of i mean i have like hypotheses in my mind and i could just throw at you but is that more of um is it does it have to do with sort of capitalism in a way or, or i i always have this like I, again i'm going to start this episode with this friend of mine but there was always this trap and it seems to be a way into a lot of this consp conspiracy theory thinking is 
a logical mistake that people, when people discover who benefits from a policy or world event, they've automatically assumed who um, designed the world event, right? Like the pharmaceutical companies are making money now on the COVID vaccine. So they must have been the ones who put the COVID vaccine in the first place. And it's like this logical jump that you make. And here's a hypo, I don't know if this hypothesis stands up at all, but for anybody in a sort of capitalistic open society, we've, who has made just a tiny bit of money, you, you, you quickly sort of realize like, no, you know, that's not how these things tend, tend to work because you've, you've been on the other side, you've been in the shoes of the pharmaceutical company on a very, very micro scale. And you're like, no, they're just taking advantage of, of market forces that they didn't create the same way I do when I come up with a product to sell on the market. Um, and maybe if that's something that an authoritarian country like you haven't experienced, are you more likely to sort of, or, or I guess I would say less likely to have that balloon popped? Does that, did that make any sense when you just laid out for me? <laughs> I don't know. We argue more that in a democratic uh, countries, the more democratic countries, the more opportunities. Um, also, um, people who are inclined to believe in conspiracy theories have to actually voice their um, yeah, their mm. own opinions, their own beliefs. To also, if they feel discontent with the system, feel excluded, they have more. They, they are less likely to feel excluded because they have more opportunities potentially um, to. Um, uh, participate, uh, but if they feel unhappy that they can voice their discontent, that they can organize themselves, that they can engage in protest, um, so they have more opportunities, so the, so they're le less likely to feel politically excluded. And also there is other work, uh, for instance, of Willem von, Jan Willem von Poyen, who suggests that it has to do um, with procedural um, justice, to what extent people feel that decision-making uh, has taken place on a fair uh, basis and this is of mm -hmm. course also more likely to take place in a democracy so we actually think that it is important for instance to feel yeah uh, to also give voice to um potential uh, conspiracy theorists because mm -hmm. otherwise they feel even more excluded so like is this some of the maybe this question for you hugo the sort of you know light is the best disinfectant kind of analogy of like hey let the conspiracy theorists get up and blurt it out, and then we'll all hear how crazy it is, and that's that's the best defense against it. Seems risky, as you said, in the era of social yeah. media to allow that to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yes and no. I think I think that's that's an interesting question. But I know it, like the, the, the paper that you read sounds a bit kind of depressing. It's obviously one paper within a broader kind of work. And then Marie mentioned, and this is the first time we've started working together on this. And then we have other papers where we precisely try and explore these things. Mm. I think the first thing to say, I think already to realize. That, you know, conspiracy theories have always been with us. It's a kind of a, it's not a minority sport, but it's a majority phenomenon. Already realizing that I think is quite important because it shows that, that in the past there's been loads of these conspiracy theories too, but why have they not been as dominant as perhaps they are in this moment in time? Although, you know, in the US, like remember McCarthyism, et cetera, where it was quite strong too. So it's always there. And then the question is, okay, well, you know, and I think in some ways, this is what Christopher Hitchens was also, I don't know if this is what he was getting at, but this is one of the conclusions I draw from it too. It's like, well, you can completely notably squash conspiracy theories, but doing so you've lost democracy. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do you deal with it when it is democratic um, context? And as as you said, and as Marie, Anne Maria was kind of um, re-underlining, re for us, it's a lot of to do, it's a lot to do. One of the main driving things is feeling politically included, because at least then you feel it's part of, it's, you know, a lot of, it's true that a lot of literature seems to 
be again pejorative in terms of conspiracy theories but conspiracy theories also there's reasons why people believe in conspiracy theories because sometimes they feel like well they're losing control of their lives and actually conspiracy theories gives them an explanation for the things that are happening to them especially if these are negative things which is to say well the reason i'm not getting ahead in my life is because actually there's a small group of people who are stopping me from doing so and we all have those feelings, right? We all have moments where we're feeling down, we're feeling a bit paranoid, or like, well, why am I not getting ahead? Well, it's because these people don't want me to succeed. We all have those experiences. Some people, sadly, it becomes a, a full kind of life experience. Um, right now, I don't know if that speaks to, to you, and I'm very happy. I don't know if you want to talk about your friend or whatever his own yeah. personal experiences, but that often, that kind of often happens. I mean, I can... Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I'd, I will again at the open. I'm going to write something somewhat personal about him. But um, I mean, his brand, this was all pre-Trump. In fact, we hadn't spoken in about three years um, and uh, we had lost touch. But his, you know, his way in was Federal Reserve kind of stuff and sort of economic tinkering, the, the gold standard stuff. I, I don't know how familiar you are with sort of that whole world. By the time 9-11 happened, he was already pretty primed to ha- be a 9-11 truther, I think. Um, yeah, and, and the, as you were saying that, the, the thing about conspiracy theories that was always so difficult for me to deal with with him and that kind of thinking was that sometimes they're true, <laughs> you know? And, th- and that's the hardest part about conspiracy theories is even if just a small part of it is true sort of the whole thing gets gets validated but it's actually true that sometimes as you said that's the moment i think that the term should shift from being a conspiracy conspiracy theory to an actual cover-up which is slightly different as a kind of yeah. news event but sometimes they're actually true <laughs> and, sometimes, and there are yeah. conspiracies there of are course conspiracies, there's conspiracies yeah. right there are conspiracies and so that that is part of the and i think that's still something that we're all kind of working on yeah. it's like well how do we how do we make these distinctions i, I sometimes play around this idea so well there's a good because conspiracy theories is, is today means kind of something it means 9 11 it means truther it means these types of things but can we switch it around and say well what about having theory of conspiracies because one of the big differences you, you might say and there's plenty of ways of describing and even if actually if you think about authoritarian regimes that Anne marie brought up if you are oppositional within an authoritarian regime then most likely you're operating on conspiracy conspiratorial type of style because you have to do your opposition in secrecy and these types of things because otherwise you know the the uh, the authoritarian the regime would just would just would just squash you and you can see some of these interesting ways this is playing out with um, in Russia kind of today. Um, so there are conspiracies. Um, there are, um, um, you know, there, there are cover-ups. Um, and some of the things also we have to think about is, it goes back to your pharmaceutical thing, which is that, well, there are certain structural kind of, there are structural questions too, right? There are mm-hmm. structural opportunities and people to evade of those structural opportunities, like the pharmaceutical companies at the moment. So of course you can say, well, the pharmaceutical companies are lining their pockets at the moment and they're really exploiting this as best they can. That may be true. And we may say that and we may criticize it. To say that they're the ones then who created this in the first place and are released it, et cetera, then you flipped over. And so right. then already you can make those distinctions. And also you have to talk about networks of power I mean, one of the questions we ask, and, it, and this there's a debate about this, which is within the conspiracy theory, there was often a number of different questions. One of them was, even though we live in a democracy, a few people still kind of control most things. And it's like, well, I think I I agree with that. I know I mean, that was I, the one. I just want yeah. to point out because I have the paper in front of me. And yeah. the, that, that was one of the ones. And I was like, wait, I, 
I think I answered yes I, to that in my, my yes, conspiracy yeah. theorist. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's just yeah. a theory about having elites, right? Right and, right. and and I think that's okay. You could say, well, there are elites. You know that we live in a representative government, but actually we have representatives, and they're pro probably a political class, and mm -hmm. we can say that and we can criticize them to say that they're you know a one because I think that's also one of the differences is that conspiracy theories tends to have this one unified explanation for everything. It's very mm -hmm. very um, kind of unified. Whereas you might say, no, there are different groups of people who are conspiring against one another to get what they want, but sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. And there are kind of probably power effects, like, yes, you know, the political class has more power than normal citizens like you and me. That's true. Um, but that's not necessarily a conspiracy. So there is a lot of kind of work that needs to be done at that level to kind of parse certain things yeah, out. Like corruption versus conspiracy yes. at all yeah. is like, I mean, what you described just sounds like crony capitalism corruption and the, and those lines get get very uh yeah get very thin was there anything you found of those i, I could read them here but I'll, I'll just reference your paper uh, of the 10 items that you asked for people was there any surprises that you found in the ones that sort of attracted people was there any variation sort of by country in those like for example when the aids virus was created and spread around the world on purpose by a secret group or organization things like that um what do you have? The truth about harmful effects of vaccines is being deliberately hidden from the public, all those kinds of things. Not for me, but I don't know. Amory, this is slightly more new kind of for her, for her data. Um, so I don't know if Amory, anything was surprising. For me, it does fit a lot of the kind of work that's been done so far. It's about getting getting the differences. And I think that one of the main differences was that it's not just internal to the system, it's when you're outside of it. Which get back to your original point, which is that um, you know, as you say, we're looking at more authoritarian regimes and it looks mm. like authoritarian regimes may have even higher kind of levels of conspiracy theories. That seems to make sense. I mean, there's we live in democracies, but we know that not everybody contributes and a lot of people do feel excluded for lots of for, uh, different reasons. Some of them very valid, right? Um, yeah. And it's interesting you bring up, you bring out, uh, what was the one you said? Because vaccinations, you know, there's there are stories mm -hmm. also of like trials in African Americans in, mm -hmm. in the US. So naturally, they feel a bit more skeptical. We have also some examples we looked and the previous study looked at Argentina, and Argentina had this kind of a high belief in, you know, there's secret plots from foreign countries. It's like, well, yeah, we know that there has been CIA intervention. So obviously, they're slightly more susceptible to that type of belief. Mm -hmm. um, but so people are excluded even in democracies, and those are the people who are not all of them, but their tendency to go more towards conspiracy theories, and that's in a democratic setting. And then you have a kind of authoritarian setting where obviously you know participation is always a question of degree. I, I think is what I'm trying to say. A democracy yeah. might have more participation authoritarianism you have left, and so there's a question of degree. But so I think what we're trying to do also with our work is that. There was there has been a lot of kind of psychological work which tried to talk to people, reason with them to see if they mm -hmm. can kind of pull them out of conspiracy theories. And there has been some success in that. And I think part of what, what we're thinking of is, okay, well, let's move outside of the individual kind of one and look at a broader kind of aspect, a more structural question. Say, well, actually, it's about it's about democracy in some ways. It's about politics. And then one of the ways, so there are problems with social media and we can try to regulate those and, and the things we talked about, the political sphere, but there's also attempts obviously trying to bring people back into politics. And if you think that you bring people back into politics, that that's one way of also kind of decreasing um, conspiracy theories. And the work that we're doing at, at the moment, hopefully will go in kind of in that direction. And Marie told yeah. me to, before we came on, she told me, be careful, don't just talk about democracy. There's broader things, not just democracy, but development, um, 
mortality rates, et cetera. So we have Western kind of industrialized societies seem to have slightly less, although they do have two slightly less than kind of more authoritarian, kind of more mm. less developed regimes. But clearly inclusion um, in a broad sense, we've talked about political inclusion, there's economic inclusion, right, too. Um, more of that, um, whichever way you get to it, seems to be one way of kind of pushing back um, against yeah. where this is happening. Yeah, can, can you respond to that, Anne-Marie? Because I, I, I was going to pick up on the democracy point. So tell me why, why I shouldn't or we shouldn't be focusing solely on that. I mean, the attraction to find the variable that's going to fix this is obviously like in my head, but it's maybe not so simple. So yeah, what else should we be focusing on here? I, it's just because we are still developing the, yeah. the, the work and I'm still running some models and the first preliminary evidence points towards democracy. However, mm -hmm. because um, yeah, this type of research is a relatively expensive type of research. Uh, so we are now gratefully making uh, use of um, data that the Yukov has given to us. So mm -hmm. we're going to extend from nine countries to 20. However, there's still 20 countries. So to on the basis of 20 countries to make such a strong um, conclusions and to say this is the variable, this is something that, yeah. of course, um, yeah, quantitative researchers and myself are a little bit hesitant about. So what we see in this data is that there's a relationship, what I said before, with um, the level of democracy, democratic quality of a country, but there's also a relationship with the level of development. And then to yeah. distinguish the ones from, from each other, which one is it? Mm -hmm. That is then difficult statistically. So, but also like when you talk, for instance, I would like to add something to what um, Hugo has said. So when you talk about um, democracy, so we talk now about inclusion, but of course it also has to do maybe with um, the quality of the information environment that I strongly believe in as a political uh, behavior uh, scholar, because the quality of the information environment uh, is also higher. Uh, most of the time in um, the, yeah, the, the higher the quality of a democracy is. So um, the, that, that comes to the information that is basically being given to uh, to people by journalists, to what extent do journalists do their job uh, checking uh, um, yeah, uh, misinformation, do they contribute mm -hmm. to it? Uh, and also what you of course also see when we talked about autocratic um, countries or hybrid regimes, um, in these type of countries, you see more often um, yeah, um, that also the regime actually spreads or yeah. um, actively maintains um, yeah, conspiracy theories that we unfortunately maybe have seen some examples of um, yeah, last four years hmm. in the United States, um, this type of behavior. So um, yeah, so this is one of the things uh, that you should yeah. also look to maybe broader. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. We've gone about 50 minutes and we haven't even said the word trust yet. And now like I really because this seems to be the thing, that point you just brought up is um, like, what's a little ironic, Hugo talking about democracy is like, we we're, we're, we live in one and we're supposed to here in the US. And in this democracy, you know, the fresh images of January 6th seems to be like, wait a minute, democracy certainly gave rise to what appears to be a rather violent conspiracy theory. Um, but so it's hard to sort of square at the moment that democracy is the way to sort of defeat these things, or is it just more democracy or different democracy, or do we just have problems here in the ecosystem? But what seems to me is the the trust, right? I mean, that the, the Trump conspiracy theory was about, as Anne-Marie was pointing out, uh, maybe not even necessarily feeling like you don't participate in the system. I mean, all those Trump voters went out and voted, but they didn't trust that the vote was real and that it was counted and that the media was lying to them and everything. So how does that balance work out uh, of, of how it, if it's about guardrailing trust 
And then maybe we've already put sort of the poison in the water being like with uh, the Christopher Hitchens thing, like you could play whack-a-mole all day with these things, but sooner or later, you're going to whack one of them that was real. And then you've just sort of ruined the entire sort of the trust of who's playing the the whack-a-mole game. Everyone's now doing this with Twitter being like, well, you know, you you pulled him off. What's to say you're not going to pull off this legitimate journalist and who gets to decide? And we're back in this eternal sort of trap of of democracy. So how do we solve the trust problem? (laughs) Yeah, well... I don't know if we solve it, but I think yeah. being aware of it is already the starting point. And it, I, I think it is always that, that kind of conflict between trust and mistrust or distrust that goes hand in hand. Um, and, I, you know, and Trump, Trump is interesting. I don't know if you want to talk Trump, but I suppose it is one way of trying to answer you know, answering your question. Because I think, what, uh, firstly, there's something to be said about the kind of populist politics, right, that Trump espoused, which is democratic in a certain way, but it's a certain form of democratic understanding. You know, the true people are the true kind of white Americans, that's the true people, the other people don't really count. Um, and the populism, and that's why it's interesting, I think there, there's, there seems to be some affinities between populism and conspiracy theories. It's both quite anti-elitist, right? Your populism mm-hmm. is like the DC establishment drained the swamp, all the stuff that you got from Trump. And I, I think it's quite telling that he started his, his career as a birther. That's how yeah. he kind of launched I, his I just want to, I want to pause you yeah. there to throw this also in. I'm going to let you finish. But also I wanted to point out that we're hammering a little bit on right wing versions of conspiracy yeah. theories. But almost everything you just said lays over perfectly on the Occupy Wall Street movement of just nine years ago and could have come out of any of their mouths. So I think that this is a, it's an important point to put in as, as you're going on. Absolutely. And as I'm really, I think, underlined in terms of her study, we do find that it's more prominent at extremes. Mm-hmm. It seems in her study, but this is debated, that it's slightly more prominent on the right wing. And part of that may have to do with the fact that on the right, there's a desire for order. And mm-hmm. there's a kind of a, a desire more for a black and white understanding, which is why the kind of when we talk about magical thinking, which that kind of certain stereotypical views, it must be said now, of religion that seems to, you know, forces of good and evil, etc. And you got to, actually, you did get a lot of that with Trump supporters, right, in the QAnon, um, and the way that they explained what was supposed to happen, this kind of rapture that was mm-hmm. supposed to happen, that Trump was going to come back, arrest uh, Biden and everybody, they're all going to be sent to jail because they're they're all pedophiles participating in this pedophilic And I was just looking... Today, there's been QAnon right now is, is, is trying to deal with the fact that Biden hasn't been mm-hmm. <laughs> hasn't been arrested and is now being inaugurated and whether whether that is going to lead to split and people are going to be disappointed or not and whether it's going to maintain its kind of momentum. So there are you can, you can never get everybody, but there are some confrontations with reality but that do still have an effect. Right. So there's hopefully there's some kind of hope there. What was it trying? Yeah, trust and mistrust. Sorry, trust and distrust. It's true that and what Trump was able to do was, I think he was able to capture, especially for the Republican primaries, a lot of people had fundamental distrust in the political system. You might say the same, and rightly so, Bernie Sanders too, right? Mm-hmm. They're able to capture it because that's part of their kind of populist style, the populist rhetoric. So those people were brought back in. The question is, at, at, at what price? Um, and and it, and I think one of the big differences is, and Amory points made this point, is that well, it's through the authoritarian regimes. You know, in Europe we have Viktor Orban, right, in Hungary, who's been he's been espousing conspiracy theories for a while now. A lot of it's George Soros again. It's perhaps unsurprising if you look at the 19th century, especially in Europe, a lot of conspiracy theories were anti-Semitic. It's often groups. It's anti-Semitic, anti-Jesuit, Freemasons, right? All these groups. It's it's always the same. And so it just it just really depends who the group is, and it changes over time. But but anti-Soros stuff you get in the U.S., you get it in in in, in Hungary. Um, so he was able. So it was bringing these, yeah, bringing these kind of people um, back in. But 
how do you bring them back in? And you, you, when, and I think that's one been one of the things too, is that it seems like conspiracy theories are more prominent on the one hand because of social media, but on the other hand also because you have political leaders who are, who are espousing this. Like this is the first time we have, I don't know, is it the first time in the US that you have a conspiracy theorist in the White House? It may be the case, right? There's discussions about whether Jackson was a bit of a populist leader, perhaps, and there's elements of conspiracy theorizing there. But, you know, tr Trump is a conspiracy theorist. It's one of the first times you have a full conspiracy theory. So that obviously has a massive impact, too. So when you're talking about, well, what do we do going forward? There is a question of regulation of um, social media. And there's been some things happening there already. Already not having a leader who's actually saying these things. And there's been some studies in the US that say, well, if the leader says it, people will just parrot it. So there's elite cues, as we say. If you don't have those elite cues anymore, then you would expect conspiracy theories to, to die down a bit. And although, you know, the Trump phenomena, I think that's one of the big debates of politics right now in US politics. It's like, well, Trump may be gone, but is Trumpism going to go? And it's like, well, no. Why? It's because there's always been those elements of white nationalism, um, kind of extremist Christian um, kind of uh, who think the end of the world is nigh. That's always been there in US politics. It's how you then put it together. And those are political questions. And Trump put it together in a certain way. But it doesn't need to be put together in that certain in that way. And mm -hmm. yes, social media has played a role in putting it together. But it's also, if you don't have Trump, if you don't have that type of leader, then you don't have it. So going forward, I think those are the questions. There are questions of conspiracy theories will always be there. And you know, to a degree, that's the price, I think, to pay. I think that's going back to the Christopher Hitchens things. The price to pay to have a critical public is that an element of it's going to be conspiracy theories. The question is then ensuring that the conspiracy theory doesn't take over the whole of the public sphere, doesn't become the dominant discourse, which sadly it seems to have become. Why has it become the dominant discourse? In part because of social media, which has also led to the polarization of society, mm -hmm. right? When there's no longer trust, as you rightly say. And also you have politicians that have espoused it. So going forward, what are the things where you, responsible politicians have their role to play in here going forward um, too? I think that's important. You have the question of reg regulation of, of social media and you have the question, which is, you know, I think Biden's probably biggest challenge, which is, can you find, you can't bring every, it can't bring all the Republicans back in, right? But can you bring sufficiently back in that there's some kind of, not necessarily center ground, but there can now still be a chat between between you know Democrats and Republicans to a sufficient degree that American democracy can continue, then those are those are the challenges. I don't know if that's more helpful or not than what you originally saw from our paper, Jay. But no, at this least is it's, it's exactly it's exactly where I've wanted to take the conversation, and I want to stay on the if you, if you don't mind, um, which is a little different than the trust point. This point about democracy and about sort of political involvement, and to get it, I don't know. I, I have this nagging sort of feeling of of um agency and this lack and it, and this isn't even a political or maybe even contextual um i'd be interested in studies that looked into the amount of agency people feel over just like their environment i'm talking now about just like ai and automation and you know yeah so you see in the in the literature also that um it is it's connected to a feeling of empowerment so one way that people say that you can counter conspiracy thinking is to make people feel more empowered. And the question, of course, is how to do that, because most of these um, uh, policies or, or ideas that can help uh, solve this problem are more long term ideas. So although we did not find it, one of the things that education, of course, does is to make people feel more empowered. 
to feel more control in their over in control in their um, yeah, in the situation uncertainty that they might uh, be facing. Um, you have also initiatives, uh, therefore. Um, yeah, initiatives, of course, around also media literacy, but that is more to give people skills to evaluate the information that they um, receive. But this is also to come back to our idea of dem democracy. Um, yeah, if you are able to participate in all kinds of um, yeah, political um, ways, you feel more empowered because your voice counts and people hear you or you take part of the decision making. So uh, in that way, it is important. Yeah. It, I mean, to give you one more detail about my friend, which is on this point, he also had MS. He had a, a neurological disease that um, was literally taking his control away of his body. So talk about a lack of agency. It was whether or not he was a conspiracy theorist before or after or during this feedback loop of really having no control and physically losing control. I mean, some days he would limp or his eye would be a little droopy and some days it would get better. I mean, it's random. It's one of those diseases we know very little about. And uh, I mean, that is obviously a very like literal, tangible example of what I'm talking about. But maybe I'm trying to map that onto this larger phenomenon of everybody kind of feels a little bit like we're losing control of, of ourselves, our bodies, not just our politics. I know that's where it manifests, but just kind of everything around us. I don't know how you would isolate that and look for that in sort of a survey and a study. I'm, I'm like, you know, trying to be a therapist and everybody's, you know, like. It has not been done before, here. I think. Yeah. But we could, of course, you could look in, in surveys, also ask what people think about globalization, whether they, um, yeah feel that uh, society gives them increasingly less control over the environment and probably there is a relationship i think yeah yeah it, it, those factors that i'm i'm fascinated in um because you know i i'm just i'm feeling this dread as being an american and seeing what what's happening here and as you keep laying out this big challenge biden has um i just sort of fear the day that the Occupy Wall Street kids realize that they're kind of on the same team as like the Trump kids <laughs> who just stormed the Capitol. They just are manifestly very different on their outward politics. But maybe these anxieties in this way of thinking is a lot more aligned than they think. And then things could break rather quickly. And I think that's why we're all in a bit of a panic and reading paper like yours, you're getting a lot of attention on it. And I'm, and I'm sure other people studying it are like, hey, academia, like, tell us what to do because this is coming and we don't know how to how to solve it if I, well i mean to give you one example in the, the country we both we both work in which is the uk um mm. and where you talk about and this is theorized also in the kind of populist literature where there's this idea you know the, the, the shoehorn kind of thing you know two mm. extremities end up meeting and and certainly left-wing populists um have, have tried to say you know what we need to explain is we need to explain to the people who voted for trump or whatever that they you know what they really want is what word was what we, what we want um and and it's been i don't know how successful that's always been um but if you look at if you look at brexit right brexit is is an example of exactly what you've been talking about in many ways because um and if you look at what was this one of the main slogans for brexit was take back control Mm. How appealing is that going to be to precisely the things that you've been describing, at a, either at a personal level or at a political level? And certainly, what the, the, what left-wing populists, I think, have been emphasizing is how um, a lot of the things that um, gave us a sense of participation have been really hollowed out, whether it's political parties or the state itself, right? Um, and again, we often say, well, if 
when political parties, when there's no life of political parties and people don't participate anymore, when they are kind of like, when they fade away, then you have this direct link, which is the populist link. You have a direct link to the, to the leader. You no longer have kind of participation. So in many ways, there's almost a logical kind of link between the fact that these things have been hollowed out and we have a type of conspiracy theory populist leader because people don't participate. They don't feel they participate anymore. And so they just have a direct relationship with one person mm. rather than participating. And if they were to participate in politics, they realize actually it's really hard to get anything done to believe that there's a small group of people who control everything. You know, no way. A bit like the experience I think you said about pharmaceuticals it's like okay well sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't right but people don't have that experience of politics anymore and therefore it's much easier to say it's just one 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 block um and brexit is an example of those of the right and the left coming together because you had people who you might have associated more as we know for for, for brexit all the main political parties labor the lib dems and the conservatives were in favor of remaining and yet they they lost, right? And you saw an alliance between groups that you normally don't see. So you have Labour voters who voted for Brexit and more Conservative voters who voted for Brexit. And normally those people, those groups of people would either vote Conservative or Labour will be on a different side of the political divide. Yet, if you want to say more far left and far right, to some degree, have, have come together with that Brexit, with that Brexit moment. So it can happen. Um, so that's, that's an example. And part of it, why is yes, I don't normally buy this type of language, you know, the neoliberal kind of hollowing mm. out of the state, but to, there is something to that. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And the interesting thing is actually um, the pandemic has forced the state to come back in and forced state capacity because because to deal with the pandemic, you have to have these lockdowns, you need to mm. reproduce, you need to manufacture the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to have this investment. Um, and a lot of the countries that kind of struggled with it is because they were no longer able to use the levers of the state to be able to do these types of things. So hopefully that has has indicated a bit of a shift in terms of state mm. capacity. And if people can participate again through these kind of state things, which is still the main political actor that we have today, right, the state, um, then, then maybe that's some way also towards feeling that you can have some kind of control again of your life. Because People feel like, yes, there's globalization, these impersonal forces, as you rightly describe, in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera, everywhere. We work in universities. We feel it, too. Mm -hmm. You know, you just don't control. And it's all these metrics, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's running away from you. And that's what politics is supposed to deal with. It's supposed to give you a sense, OK, we're going to try to get back on top of these things. And it's true that a lot of people feel like that's gone. And it's driving not just conspiracy theories, it's driving populism that you don't just see in the US, but, you know, on, in, in, on Europe too. Um, you know, Anne-Marie is Dutch, I'm half Irish, half France. In France, we have, you know, Le Pen that keeps rising, a lot of uh, East or uh, Central, you know, there's this continued rise of populist parties. Why? Because people feel disempowered. Yeah. Um, and there, there, is, there has to be some, hopefully some kind of political answers to, um, to it. I love where this has been driving to sort of to this ending and this whatever this word empowering means, because I, I, I hope what doesn't happen here in the States and, and we'll see what happens in Europe is that, um, you know, the, people keep talking about the, the coming amnesia of Donald Trump, of everybody just sort of like forgetting that it happened. Obviously, I think that'd be a mistake for a lot of reasons. And uh, it's hard to take what we saw on January 6th seriously 
as an expression of sort of a, a actually sophisticated anxiety about the loss of control or whatever, because it's always expressed in these really, um, you know, the images that we all have of the guy with the horns, it's like laughable kind of stuff. And, you know, I've snickered even while you've brought up a few of the conspiracy theories. I'm sure everybody in their head is like, you know, you roll your eyes when you hear this stuff and it's hard work to do sometimes, but it's important to have the kind of work that you guys are doing and maybe just, you know, get get the laughs out of your system and actually get under it to where this is a, a genuinely sophisticated philosophical anxiety about the loss of control, about the desire for sort of uh, empowerment in the world again, and to take it seriously. Um, so, you know, I, I'm afraid if, if um, we just sort of close our eyes and hope this all ends and then we win a vote and then we just move on with our lives, it's just going to come back in waves stronger and stronger until we get some obviously, you know, it, terrible, terrible outcomes. Europe is is even more intimate. It's it's a surprising thing that people think America is full with these conspiracy theories. You already mentioned in one of your one of your survey items was about the Nazis in World War Two. It's like Europe has been through this where a conspiracy theory can go so far where it actually fuels an industrialized genocide. So um, we're all trying to <laughs> avoid that outcome. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I mean, I'll thank you guys. I don't know if you have any like final thoughts on sort of where you, obviously I love that you're continuing to work on this. So I'm excited for your next paper where you're going deeper into it and maybe looking for some of sort of other variables where we could start to highlight some of the solutions. Um, it seems you're circling the right, uh, variables there about empowerment. I don't know if you had any final thoughts about everything I just spilled out. No, I mean, and we'd be happy to come back on again, and and when we have uh, when we have more work done, obviously, yeah. and uh, no, but I think it's I think you're right. It's important. I think it's, this has been brushed under the carpet for too long, and it's mm-hmm. there, and it's and it's not a minority sport. It's you know, yes, and it's true. I think we have a tendency to kind of snigger or whatever, but but that's not good enough, and we we see what happens when we don't take it seriously, yeah. and it's 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 a serious live issue, and we need to really think about it. So also, you know, part of I think. Thanks to you for for bringing this up and for 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 kind of yeah for bringing it to the attention of even more people uh, because if we do think about it it's not I'm not I'm not a defeatist I think you know we have dealt with these things before and in Europe we've you know we've dealt with them very very seriously because we've abs- had absolute disasters as you just mentioned the Nazi regime right um, so it's 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 not something that's it's it's probably I think we mentioned this in the paper. It, there's an element of it being conspiracy theories are a bit of an anthropological fact. Like it's mm-hmm. there and we can go into the psychological thing of saying, well, you know, we, we've, we've, we've evolved over time to be slightly suspicious of outsiders, et cetera. And that's a kind of survival thing. Right. And there's all that. And it's probably, there's a probably degree of truth of it. And that plays into kind of conspiracy theorizing. So it's there, but we need to be aware of it. And if we're aware of it, there's no reason why, you know, intelligent people can't come together and say, okay, well, how can how do we manage this at least? I, I think it'd be I think it'd be dangerous and it'd be wrong and I think it'd be also bad to say people just because you believe in conspiracy you're a bad person. There's lots of people who believe you know I've been doing this for a while now. I've had lots of conspiracy theories and a lot of them are very very nice people and there's no real problem and there's no political negative aspect of it. It gives them a sense of identity and that's fine. Um, but there's obviously other aspects of it where it becomes very charged as you as we saw in the Capitol there last week. Yeah, that's but there's no reason why that can't be that can't be confronted. And if if not eradicated, because I don't think you can eradicate it, you have that's we have to accept the fact that that exists. It exists in America, it exists in Europe, it exists throughout the world. But does it mean that we just have to let it be and and brushing it under a carpet is certainly not the right answer. 
Yeah. It's an important uh, topic to continue to uh, yeah, to study. Uh, also because, of course, of the, the time that we live in a, in a pandemic. Uh, because if you look now in, um, yeah, in Europe, uh, in most European countries, uh, the way that they deal with uh, the pandemic um, is different than in the United States until now. So we are living under much more severe um, mm-hmm. measurements in terms of uh, of lockdown of, of um, uh, lack of uh, freedoms that we basically have and uh, in some of the countries such as for instance my home country uh, or my country of origin the netherlands um, you also see now a rise of uh, conspiracy uh, theorists uh, also of american conspiracies such as um, qanon uh, followers but for instance we had last weekend that uh, and we had actually violence against um there was a big protest in the netherlands and half of those people who showed up were people who thought it would be fun to do um to maybe have some action in this uh, because we're in a severe national lockdown so they were maybe out for violence but there were also people who were very uh, very, very concerned about of course the increasing um restrictive measures that uh, the government is taking. Uh, and among them is actually a large group of uh, people who buy into these uh, conspiracy uh, theories around COVID. And um, yeah, this also ended up in violence. And this is something that we do not necessarily see that often. So we do live, I think, at the moment and also in combination what we have in Europe, these um, yeah, strong or increasing um, powers that the, the government is getting and increasing uh, restrictive uh, measures that are taken um, to even further uh, restrict people's uh, freedom. This is, I think, is an interesting and also potentially dangerous combination uh, yeah. with conspiracy uh, yeah, thinkers. And just to fill up, I think we're, we're, the rubber is going to hit the road soon because, you know, one of the, we know the consequence of conspiracy theories is vaccine hesitation. Yeah, right? That conspiracy theories fear, don't want to get vaccinated. Already. Yeah, yeah, so, and that's a long-standing thing. And obviously we know that at least one of the ways out of this pandemic touch wood is is vaccination. And this is, so right now we're in this moment where, um, you know, we need to reduce conspiracy theories about vaccination so that people will get vaccinated, so people will, will get it. I know in the US there's, I mean, the it's masks, it, yeah, and masks even itself became a kind of a politicized issue. So yeah. it's not inconsequential. It has direct impacts on the situation we are now. And I think, you know, the governments across the world have to be wise to the fact that they need to have to come up with a strategy of how we're going to deal with it, how we're going to deal with these types of anti-vax conspiracy theories, because we want we want to vaccinate people. Yeah. Um, and there's been different ways. I mean, there's been legal ways in the past, but it's 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 not something it's something that we need to think about and have a clear strategy and perhaps a, even a coordinated strategy as to how this has to be dealt with. So we're right in it. It's not, I you know. Actually, I, we started. I started looking. I was on this this research project in Cambridge that started back in 2013, and we're looking at conspiracy and democracy. And we thought this is kind of amusing, etc. You know, we and we, at that point we still thought of it as this is. It's again, as I said, I keep saying the minority sport. It's it's kind of marginal. It's not it's not the center of our democratic regimes. Little did we know, you know, three years later, it's at the center of our democratic regimes. So, and it's today that question is asked: anti-vaccination. Um, conspiracy theories how do we get out of a pandemic so it's something that needs to be really thought through and i think uh, uh, governments have the challenge now of trying to come up with some strategy of how they're going to deal with conspiracy theories how do you deal with social media etc to be able to roll out the vaccination program yeah yeah and maybe it's those um things you hinted at with messages of control if, if you could somehow 
deliver the message in a way that people feel like it's it, mm. you, to really understand it's tapping into their sense of loss of control and all this kind of stuff. If you can somehow reown that, um, it, maybe that's the that's the, the 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 medicine for the conspiracy theory. If that's a bad yeah, analogy, Jay, Jay so. you're, you should be you should be you're behind on the Biden team now. You're going to tell them oh, that. God. The way the way to do it is to tell them like regain control of your lives, get vaccinated, so you can go out again and have a life that you had. Before. Yeah, maybe that's well, the forward. I wish. I mean, it's like I love Hitchens, so you brought him up a couple of times. If we could, you know, <laughs> to complete his analogy, figure out a way to get the exhaust pipe out of our <laughs> out of our mouths, open the garage door somehow. We just have to figure out how to do it. And you're right; it's the, the clock is ticking. I mean, I, I, again, I Thank you to Hugo and Anne-Marie. I am eagerly awaiting their next publication and hope to have them on again to talk about those findings. I don't expect this phenomena to abet at any time soon. With a bevy of complex, interconnected challenges facing us, which imply a form of global cooperation, the shadowy globalist conspiracy enacting a coordinated effort to control and restrict our freedoms for some supremely evil cause will be more and more tempting for people to find. I urge all of us finding friends, foes, or even ourselves going down these captivating paths to exercise extreme caution and always remember the line between run-of-the-mill corruption and greed and unfalsifiable conspiracy. This, of course, cannot prevent us from being vigilant about the first thing, Corruption is plenty dangerous enough without any leaps to conspiracy necessary. Okay, so I have a little surprise for you. I've added one more episode after the next one that will be the true season two finale. It's something I've been trying to do for a few years now. It's an episode with a few high schoolers who I had the privilege of judging in this year's virtual ethics bowl. You've likely heard me mention that on the show before a few times. It's a philosophy competition for high schoolers that presents different hypothetical and real cases to ponder every year. I've taken about 30% of the show ideas for Dilemma directly from the High School Ethics Bowl. Um, I'll be speaking with members of a team from Lawrenceville High School about the view of the world uh, from high schoolers' perspectives at the moment, and particularly what it's like to be discovering philosophy as a teenager in the year 2021. But first, next week is an episode with Rizwan Verk on simulation theory. This takes the famous simulation hypothesis by Nick Bostrom and explores its validity, but much more importantly, its philosophical and ethical implications. Verk is a tremendous guest, and I thought we had just a really great conversation that went into some incredible areas, religious stuff, technical stuff, ancient philosophy stuff. So... Look for that one in a week. And to anyone out there who found this episode who knew Ellery Sampson, I know you miss him. And so here's some more of his music. I got my